Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. How are you guys doing today? Doing all right. JB, I'm in acceptable boundaries. Yeah, JB, I know that you're feeling under the weather, so I really appreciate you. Uh, 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 total Surviving brain falling. Yeah, surviving, making the effort, <laughs> Ral- rallying, yeah. rallying is oh, the uh, rallying. Is the term that I was looking for. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Uh, if something that I can say in my incessant rambling helps someone down the road, it's worth it. There's we should all be so lucky. Yeah, there's always something in rambling, incessant rambling, that's going to be valuable. It's not podcasts, it's podcast. Um, so yeah, thank you guys again. Um, let's start just with like some preliminary stuff. Moose might get dropped every now and then pay it. No mind. He, uh, he loves to disappear on us. Um, I want to jump right into some quick introductions. Uh, maybe Andreas, let's start with you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're involved in, um, and what brings you with us or what brings you to us today? Sure. Uh, I'm Andreas Walters. I am by day a business analyst for a financial company. And by night slash hobby, uh, I am a tabletop game developer and producer. Uh, and I manage table the production and development and the design of tabletop games and games and related products. Um, I've launched 14 Kickstarter projects uh, and a number of popular brand lines, as well as currently making the Hyperlight Drifter tabletop RPG. Very cool. Fifteen Kickstarters. Um, I, think. I want be more than that. I oh wow! I want to bask in the glory of that, but we will definitely come back to that. Uh, I just want to make a note that that's uh, that's an that's an impressive accomplishment. Most people find one Kickstarter to be daunting. You've done <laughs> possibly more. You've you've lost count. Of how many kickstarters you've done so let's just um bow before the majesty of that one and i'm not i'm not <laughs> and then i get an email from someone i'm like okay what project did he back you know i gotta go look him up and <laughs> we raised five dollars yes successfully funded um jb can you catch us up a little bit on uh, where you're coming from who are you Hello, I am JB. Most people know me as Drop the Die on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, all those good places. I am a full-time D&D 5e and tabletop RPG content creator. Most of my income and my work comes from Patreon and previous self-publications on DMs Guild and things like that. But as for 2020 as a whole, I've actually not done any of my own projects and have focused exclusively on working with other people on their projects and Kickstarters, 
their publications that are coming on later in the year or next year due to the virus and the insanity that that's caused. There's a lot mm -hmm. of setbacks currently. But hopefully 2021 will be back to making my own products and making my own designs and putting them out in the world, including Kickstarter, uh, Kickstarter stuff and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so this, this podcast is, um, in general art centric, you know, it's sort of like geared towards artists, working artists, uh, the serious hobbyists. Um, but you know, you guys are, I think important to talk to, um, because there's a lot of overlap in what you guys do with, you know, a, a whole host of other things, um, artwork, not the least of which artwork being important to what it is that you guys do. Um, you know, but a lot of the, the, the marketing and the, you know, the wisdom that you guys are going to bring to the table is, you know, is what we're, what we're really interested in. And, um, and just in the, you know, the, especially the art world that, that we exist in moose and I, um, the overlap with dungeon D and D dungeons and dragons, tabletop games is pretty vast. So, um, you know, that's sort of like what brings us to you guys. And, I want to jump in here real quick. Yeah. Uh, we also did invite uh, Emily Harmon onto the show, mm -hmm. and she was not able to make it due to uh, prior engagements at a convention. So uh, we asked her some of these questions in advance, and we will interject her uh, points to keep her involved in the conversation. And we do really appreciate her input as well. Yeah, thank you uh, for noting that. Um, and uh, you know, and all of the guest information will be in show notes that will be attached to all of the places that this will show up. Um, so please go check that out uh, when it comes up in front of you um jb this uh this uh area of expertise that you have um you you mentioned t some table some work with uh tabletop gaming outside of D. &D. It it's largely been D, D, right but you've done work outside of that as well it has been largely D, &D but i have uh I've done playtesting and playtest feedback for Helheim Unbound RPG mm -hmm. last year, I believe, or maybe the year before. It's all kind of blending together in the 2020 miasma. Yeah. But I'm also working with Absolute Tabletop for Mecha Hack. That's coming pretty soon, their mm -hmm. second expansion for that system. And some other stuff in the ANDA, in the ANDA, in the ANDA, in the nearby sphere that I've been working on as well. Uh -huh. It's just a bit of a, a bit of a tangent here, just real quickly, um, because you're on your website. Um, I think you're it. What focuses most prominently on your website is you know is the reviews that you've done for other products, um, mm -hmm. and you sort of downplay a little bit. I, maybe downplay isn't the right word because I'm not putting intention in your mind, but it seems downplayed a little bit the amount of work that you have done for you know, creating content, uh, for tabletop games. Um, and you were saying that the majority of your income comes from that, like all of the stuff that you've, you've created in the past and the sort of the ongoing sales that results from that. Yeah. As to date, and I'm, I'm kind of juxtaposing and putting this number together on the fly here. I think for product reviews and for my website, I've made about $6 in eight years. So that is not a source of income for me. That's just hobby stuff. And I do it because I'm in an advantageous position to get these products from these companies 
mm-hmm. know them personally and through reputation and right. be able to show everyone who follows my other work, this is what you're going to get with this product. This is what you can expect. No frills. I'm not being paid. <laughs> I haven't made any money. So, you know, I don't have any reason to lie about it. Sure, um, sure. That's a good distinction to make. the huge majority of my income comes from D&D 5e stuff that I've published, yeah. Specifically DMs Guild. Mm-hmm. And you were saying that you, up until this year, it's been all content um, that you've just that you've created uh, as a personal projects, and now you're this whole year you've just been working with other people. Was there a particular reason for that to happen? Like what what uh, inspired you to just start working with other people and not do your own in, stuff this year? Yeah, in 2019, I got asked to be a part of. I think three projects uh, towards the later part of the year, Q3 and Q4 of 2019. And I did not have the time. I was releasing uh, other publications like my platinum bestseller, Taverns and Tapper, or actually Mithril at this point. It sold like 5,000 copies. And it took me six months to make that thing. And I'm like, I am not doing anything else until I finish this and I publish it. And then we can talk. And when I published it and it was a hit, there was a whirlwind that I got swept up in where I just had too much work on my plate that I couldn't be a part of these other projects that seemed really exciting. So coming into 2020, I told myself that I wanted to do exclusively other stuff. Mm. All these invitations that I had been getting, I wanted to just keep saying yes. Okay. Yes to work with new people. Yes to new projects, things outside of my comfort zone. I just wanted to keep saying yes to everybody in 2020. And then in 2021, <laughs> do a mix of both. Uh, okay. See which one works out better for me, which one's better for my mental health and financial stability, all these other little factors that I wanted to take into account. I wouldn't be able to know for sure until I could contrast them. Yeah. So 2020 and 2021 are going to be my two years of contrast to see how I want to operate moving forward. Got it. Cool. Um, Andreas, before I bounce back to you, I want to pause take a tangent from a tangent (laughs) and so we're back to normal now right (laughs) yeah right (laughs) pretend that um you know we're talking for a minute that we're that and and i and either of you can jump in on this or both of you that we're talking to people who don't know what perhaps dungeons i think everybody's familiar with a, a tabletop game i can't imagine somebody that doesn't in, in Western civilization that doesn't know what that is. And then, um, but then like, what is, what is D and D? What makes D and D particularly unique amongst tabletop games? Um, and yeah, what, like, what is it that people are doing when they're playing D and D? This is just for the sake of, you know, the, the, the total newcomer of like, why, why should I care? <laughs> Andreas, you want to take us through that a little bit? So, the why do I care or like, you know, why do people care about D&D or why it exists as a market? Um, I think the main reason behind that is that it is a major fantasy genre in a sense that has pulled a lot of imagination um, from the younger 90s uh, generation that have grown up into it and our parents have grown up and there's sort of been two a couple generations of Dungeons and Dragons that a subculture has evolved into and as a game it has slowly evolved into a more and more social um, space 
and to this point where geeks geek culture is now popular culture dungeons right. and dragons has fallen with that into the limelight of this is actually a cool game a lot of cool people play because they are also nerds like you know stephen colbert you know great personality you have vin diesel you have there are so many different you know you have critical role now um as a great example of you have so many large personalities and they all lose themselves in this world and there's something compelling to it and the compelling thing about D&D is it a generic fantasy universe where you can put anything you want into it and D&D happens to be the biggest one on the table and the biggest one in the marketplace and that dominance has carried itself through the years so whether it was something else like whether elder scrolls made a tabletop role-playing game in the 90s or 80s you know like it could have been a different story but that's you know daggerfall tabletop role-playing game isn't on every table so yeah 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 it's uh it's it's interesting that that shift how how mainstream it's be i mean not to when Avengers i movies uh yeah Man, Co- yeah comic Spider-Man. books D like comic these books. these have all become pop culture icons and, True and blood what you start what? getting that crossover um yeah another tangent what what do you think was that shift like what brought us to this point where like now now D is cool <laughs> i used to get beat up for playing D. uh <laughs> geeks became millionaires oh yeah the money geeks had money like, and they spent can- it on stuff they liked if you really stop and think about it, like I can remember when things started to change around and I started to see a lot of media that I enjoyed all of a sudden was right around the time when like computers were blowing up mm. and older people had no idea how to fix them. Mm-hmm. And then younger people, nerds in particular, who had been taking them apart and putting them together, they started making a little bit of money. And then they started making their own little side projects, their side hustles and side businesses. And then they were involved in making movies, making CGI for movies. And it just kind of kept evolving in that way. And Lord of the Rings happened. And it's this gargantuan... Yeah, Lord of the Rings is a great example. That is probably a flagstone. It is a gargantuan cultural touchstone Mm -hmm. that anchors D&D to every single person that has grown up in the last 25 years. Right. That's really an, that's an interesting Harry point. Potter, which will be interesting to see. That was the last generation. Uh-huh. Like we sort of had, you know, Lord of the Rings, the books, Lord of the Rings, the movies, Harry Potter books, Harry Potter movies. Uh, what do we have now, though? That's the, that's the interesting thing to see where generic fantasy goes or, you know, target setting fantasy. It's a really good question, because, I mean, there are, I don't know are, if there are any like modern classics of that type of caliber like at this point i I don't know nothing is like i can think of like uh, you know sanderson and you know some others that are like making like about to say brandon sanderson deserves to be on that list joe abercrombie Mm -hmm. Uh, i'll never be able to pronounce his name and give it actual justice the whole witcher series we can already see ripples of that coming out yeah 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 no that's true we have the witcher show uh witcher games we Mm -hmm. also have witcher movies planned and a tabletop game that's very robust and i think it's going to be making splashes in the next year or so so well what a great time to be alive and and what a great time to be running 15 kickstarters andreas um (laughs) what in the f man like what's this so i don't i don't 
well yeah kind of i mean i don't want to like you know make you relive any like bad memories or anything but like did they all get funded like have like all the kickstarters you've done or like how many what percentage wow okay so just about everyone that i know who's even and then i relaunched and that one funded but the only reason i canceled it was because i felt like my scope was too close near to its related ip Okay. Um, okay. So that was more of a oh maybe I should retweak this, and so like three days in I canceled it or four days in. Yeah. So um, everybody that I know that's even thought about starting a Kickstarter has been really intimidated. Um, just like how much work goes into it. Are you, have you done all of those by yourself, or like have you worked with other people in developing those? Or pretty much all of them are done by myself. Um, I am pretty much a one-man team for as far as i mean not to say that i'm doing everything like in terms of marketing developing writing like there's i am the project manager of everything so if i need art i need writing or specific writing uh i need to get people to make those i can Mm -hmm. do layout to a degree or graphic graphic design um to a certain extent but my skills I know are limited um, in that implementation. So like if I need something, I need to get other people on board to help with that. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of the projects I do are very specific. Um, I usually try to aim. So like, you know, I'm producing a calendar, annual calendar every year. We're doing a Kickstarter for that. So I'm ramping up for this Mm. current one right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a, I have a plush ready to go. Uh, that I've held on for two years now that I want to launch. And I've had a project that's been going on for too long. So finally closing that out, bringing in the next one. So it's it's sort of, it's it's very much a project management method. And crowdfunding is a step in that. Um, the first one was a pain in the ass. Um, I asked for probably too much money and I barely funded. Mm. Um, I asked for 15K and this was five years ago. Um, as a relatively unknown creator in a very new ecosystem. And I barely funded. And from there, that was a lot of hard work, learning all the new things about Kickstarter and then, you know, learning how shipping works and (laughs) shipping calculations, the joys. But like, you know, I've turned myself to be more towards business than I am towards, as much as I love the creative work, I am, I feel like I am far more efficient on the business side where people tend to avoid, so. That's where I usually try to put most of my effort. Do you think that there's something, you know, in your uh, your life outside of content creation for tabletop games and Kickstarter and stuff that prepared you for uh, the dive into that? Because learning all of this on the fly, you know, like making it all in that initial one. Now you're a pro, you know, so mm-hmm. you probably just got it muscle memory. But, you know, like going into it like that, was there something that you felt like kind of like uh, geared you for it? I mean, uh, so my prior life was being an analyst. Um, mm. So collecting data, analyzing data, seeing trends, uh, understanding why the data looks like the way it is, um, mm. understanding business processes and trying to find solutions or optimize stuff like that. So, I mean, it really comes down to just being curious and willing to learn. Um, if you are curious uh, if you were willing to learn something or like willing to try and try again until it's right, um, then I think you'll be fine because you really need to, you know, put energy towards it. And it's a lot of energy. Like you're going to build a Kickstarter page and it's going to look okay. You know, it's going to look all right. 
but it needs to, or you need to make a Kickstarter video. You're probably gonna spend a week making that Kickstarter video. Um, probably th- four days of that week are gonna be editing. Um, mm. uh, so and there, there's a lot of like trial, error, rinse, repeat in that regards. Cause like I've made a couple of Kickstarter videos. They all take a lot of time. I can spend an, an entire day making a Kickstarter video. Um, and that's like an entire like 7 a.m. to like 8 p.m. And I probably will take an extra day to do it another to like, you know, clean it up even more, or like to change which music I want to make. And that means I have to re retime everything. Um, and like you learn the tool as you go. Like I wasn't I wasn't that familiar with Premiere. I wasn't familiar with Photoshop that much. I wasn't familiar with InDesign until my you know curiosity or desire to learn. Um, forced me to use those applications and then you learn with it as you grow. Yeah. So there's, um, there's a lot that we, that we want to get into. Um, but the, the Kickstarter thing is, is definitely, I think one of the, the key features that I would like to talk about. Um, but also understanding that this could be a whole podcast in itself. Um, maybe for now the, the, the last thing that I'll just kind of leave as an open-ended question for you is, uh, what are the secrets? Uh, <laughs> Nowadays, <it's> advertise <laughs> early, advertise often. Okay. Um, the thing is that you are going to be a nuisance to people and it's sort of accepted that like it's, <laughs> it's, everyone understands that you're going to be the asshole trying to show your thing. But yeah. the thing is that you can't be that asshole. You can be an asshole, but you can't be that asshole. Where is the line um, and, for you? Like, what what draws the distinction? So for me, like, I'll try to maybe do a post or two a day. I don't like intruding in people's feeds uh, unless it's like a, I promote your stuff here, but I'm not looking for those. So if I find them, I will, you know, maybe post a thing in there. But I don't usually go to message boards. I don't go to blogs because, or not blog. I, uh, I usually don't go to like forums, I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, cause like EN world or like other large places, because they usually have pretty stringent requirements on advertising or like shilling right. and they don't want pe- and you, everyone else like Reddit, even they don't want people to shill. They want you to participate in the community. Right. I don't have time to participate on Reddit because I don't really like Reddit. Um, and so <laughs> that, I mean, I, yeah, so I posted a, uh, Kickstarter project to Reddit and they're like, Oh, how is this person leaving with 10 K in their pocket? And I'm like, how the hell am I making 10 K? Like. Right, Show right. me where I'm making that money because I want to know. That is a um, fantastic margin. We need. I know, right? We need this person to tell us how they did that math. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, am I making paperbacks with like no art? So <laughs> just as a, a rough estimate, what what do you expect? Like, what percentage of it of the Kickstarter, uh, as a rule of thumb, that you see somebody uh, putting up their product for, are they actually taking home in their pocket? One to three, five percent, maybe. I'd say at most five. And then for me, I typically don't even pay. I I pay myself on a monthly basis from mostly the sales of my products. Uh, only recently have I actually started to pay myself for my Kickstarter because I usually don't budget myself because I am not writing. I am not editing. I only do layout and write prompts. So I am a project manager at its finest or the ideas guy. So I'm pretty much managing and doing layout. I should probably pay myself for layout. I'm getting into that soon. But most of my projects, 100% is going to product and production. Um, so we'll uh, we'll we'll come back to you know like the where you promote and, and how you promote and all that kind of stuff um, later on. But um, uh, 
a question for both of you, you know, mentioned that, you know, that, oh, one thing that I did want to mention is that I'm probably like worth noting on that point that you just recently made that, uh, you know, the Kickstarter is not necessarily the way that you make money with a, with a, a product, right? It, it gets the Kickstarter the, makes the product. Thank you. Uh, yeah. And then the money that you make afterwards is up to you <laughs> to market and, and, and dish out in all of the ways that, that you one and would do this those can things. really depend on your budget or like what are you budgeting for what type of quality are you looking for to make if you're looking to make like a, a professional looking product you're making the product with the money if you're making like a zine or something like that um, or have like lower costs you can probably definitely make some profit off of it um but most of the the idea is kickstarter you're mass producing a thing like you're looking to produce 200 books or you're looking to produce 500 books, you're gonna make your sales in the sale of the remaining 800 books that you order out of that 200 you need to fulfill. Um, so, so that being said, At you least guys- from my business standpoint. Sure, sure, sure. Um, uh, and now that you mention it, JB, I, did, you, did you mention that you, you've done Kickstarters before as well or? I have never done a Kickstarter, but okay. I have been involved in Kickstarters. I've okay. written, edited, layout, all that good stuff for yeah. Kickstarters and been right. in the fold. So I don't want to leave you out of that conversation either. Is there Would there uh, be anything that you wanted to add to that? Really, the only thing that I can say is that people who look at tabletop Kickstarters specifically, and they're like, they have all this money left over. He's asking $15,000 to make this tabletop book. Good Lord. Mm-hmm. I mean, the cover is $300. Right. Interior art, 75 a piece, up to 300 for a full page. Like, right. the, the prices come with the quality, just like Andreas was saying. If you're making a zine and it's just going to be text and it's just going to be white paper and you're just going to get it mailed, yeah, it can only cost like 500 bucks to give it to 100 people. You know, it, it's all depending on like bulk ordering and things. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about a thousand, fifteen hundred books, it's storage for the physical books when they come in. It's mm. shipping costs and packaging costs. It's the writers and the editors. I've had to come on to a Kickstarter before that needed saving two months before it was supposed to go live. The person that was doing the layout didn't do any of it and said that they weren't going to, and they needed me, and then I found a bunch of editing problems, and then I had to be editor, writer, layout artist, artist, photo manipulator, like, you know, so that came with a premium. And I can see Andreas's face. He knows that that came with a premium for my service to help the Kickstarter complete. And that's something that the Kickstarter has to take into account before it sets its goal or before it goes live. So Mm -hmm. there's always going to be... Um, margin over what you need, but that's emergency funds. That's stuff that you need to have in case one of these problems arises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, thank you for uh, pointing that out. You know that because it it's something that I've sort of like hear heard echoes of. Like, oh my god, they made so much money from this Kickstarter. And, you know, and it's like, well. <laughs> This I and I I don't know to a certain extent not to go off on a rant but to a certain that's true I think to with business in general you know like 
oh, it costs how much? What? Like, what is, you know, like people don't have like a good frame of reference for so like, yeah, go one ahead. easy thing is like a uh, production run of like the baby bestiary book. It's a hundred pages, hardcover, eight and a half by 11 costs around $5,000 for a thousand books. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and then for baby bestiary, every image in there was $500 full page. Um, so there was 24 beasts in that. That's around 32,000 or what? $2,500 at that point. And mm-hmm. then cover, that's another 800. And then I, we haven't even talked about editor and writing. Um, right. So then we're already up into thousands, tens of thousands. And I haven't even like looked at paying myself yet. Yeah. It's, I mean, basically a Kickstarter is a, is a really fast, uh, a, um, an, a, a startup yeah it's an investment it's an infusion, campaign it's a pre-order right. infusion right the hard part for people to visualize and anyone who's not sure about how like a kickstarter for a book works at this point just visualize that a novelist might run a kickstarter for their next novel right and people are like but you're going to make money off of selling the novel mm-hmm. you're not paying the person to write the novel you're paying their rent and their utilities for the mm-hmm. five months that they spend writing it. You're paying the editor and you're paying the publisher and you're paying to get the physical book. Okay. Yeah. So it's all of the things that you're not actually ingesting from the book mm-hmm. that you need to pay for that the writer himself can't do. And that's right. why tabletop books are so complex in that regard is yeah. because you have to have this perfect fusion of art editing, writing, production, delivery. All these things need to come together to make one product every single time. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's come up is with uh, Kickstarter, it used to be the just the idea would get funded. And now it's <laughs> almost to the point where you have to have the product finished in order to get funded. Is that the same thing for your industry as well? Or is that more like other areas that have that Kickstarter problem? We'll go ahead. Um... I was just going to say that the tabletop industry specifically has had a large boom, as Andreas has said, from Critical Role, from celebrity backing. Hasbro is actually in control of Wizards of the Coast and Dungeons and Dragons by extension. And Hasbro has basically infinite money. Mm. So anytime they want to bring attention to a product, they can. But it never looks like it takes that much effort. But for people making those books and those products, it is a Herculean effort to have everything done and ready to show. And before people back Kickstarters for tabletop RPGs and tabletop publications, they want to see almost everything. They want to see the art. They want to see the cover. They want to see teasers. They want to see stretch goals. They want to see how all of the pages are manufactured, what information is going to be inside, where five or six years ago, I'm sure that Andreas can tell you, the Kickstarter used to be, I want to make a Dark Souls ripoff. And people would be like, that's cool. I'll give you $1,000. <laughs> and then you write it, and then you make some money, and then you publish it. Mm. Yeah. yeah and no, it's now they cool. want to see a finished, polished product before they even bother backing something. Mm. I feel like this came up mostly in the board game space um where a lot of people got burned and so now they want to see review they want to see the board game reviews before it even kickstarts mm. um 
And so that sort of demand on quality has also carried into other parts of the Kickstarter-verse. And I still fight with this as much as possible because I like to sell the idea of the product, you know, like I want to make this and this. Um, but nowadays there is a requirement that like I used to, you know, do sample layouts and stuff like that as well. But nowadays you need a play test. Like if you're doing a mechanics, you need something to show because no one's going to believe that you're pulling off what you're doing unless you've shown you did the work. Mm -hmm. And yeah. that from a budget standpoint is like, well, great. Now I need to invest money. I don't have into something I, you know, into a product I might make, um, depending on how well it does. And there's a huge gap in terms of like, you know, what the startup idea of Kickstarter was. And I still like that. And I have to fight against the, you know, people who now expect that a completed product. And then my most recent Kickstarters actually, like for Drifter, went up against that because people wanted to see the final playtest already. And it's like, no, I'm making it right now. And I'm a good designer, believe me. But, you know, people want to see the finished product already. Mm. And that's so sort of, well, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, does it make sense to make a smaller scope products instead of a, a large conglomerate of products? Uh, so if you, you do can... the presentation right, both are, so yes, smaller scope, uh, most minimum viable product is the best way to do it. Kickstarter has a weird trend in tiny, tiny um, fulfillment goals. So a lot of projects that go really big are only asking for $10,000, which is like, are you kidding me? The production budget on this is at least 30, mm. but they do it. So they snowball. And then if they don't snowball, they cancel and relaunch. Because it's a very startup -y, advertising, advertising that you passed your goal in 24 hours gets more attention than having a fantastic product. Okay. <laughs> I see it all the time and it drives me nuts. Can I, can I swear on this channel? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I fucking sure. hate it. I honestly fucking hate it. With like it's I, I because it's 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 an illusion. It's you know, it's false advertising. It's um, what's it's, I think it's it, I it's in a sense yeah, it's predatory in a sense, you know. It's you're almost kind of like uh appealing to some of the baser instincts of humanity when you when you do that. It's marketing. Yep. Yeah. It's not yeah. what you need, it's what they need to see. Yeah. So there's a there's a personal note in here that I would make, not just for myself though, but on behalf of uh almost every professional artist that I know, um, who has even kind of touched this area, uh, it's I think it's worth noting this idea of, you know, the Kickstarter being uh a fundraising effort for the product, uh not a money making scheme. So if you are listening to this in the future and you're somebody that is planning a Kickstarter and you're going to try and hire artists based on the amount of money that you hopefully will make on a Kickstarter, stop. Don't do that. That's n you're, you're, you're not going to pay the artist. You're basically just asking for free work and it's just it's not feasible. Um, now you know better, so you're just being rude if you continue to do that afterwards. Okay, if, that if, that I, there would be like a one. So if someone's asking for you to make art for someone's Kickstarter project, I as a contractor or someone who writes contracts, I would have a condition that says mm -hmm, after expiration, sure. if the Kickstarter doesn't get launched or funded, you owe money. Sure. Um, 
as a guarantee that you will get paid, whether it is from Kickstarter royalties, from the Kickstarter itself, from payment for like past work, or if X duration passes and payment hasn't been rendered, oh, payment. That's, Um, that's, that's fair. Can, can get a little sticky though. Cause like, you know, anybody that hasn't been paid or is still waiting to get paid on a contract, um, knows that that's like, that can be, yeah. Like pursuing that could be a huge, huge pain. Um, so, and only do that with people you've worked with before. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, (laughs) that makes it viable. Totally. Um, Mm -hmm. so, having talked a little bit about you guys, you know, having generated income from products that you have made Kickstarter or not, um, just as a, 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 a topic in itself, um, you guys are, are welcome to be as specific or as vague as you want to be. Uh, what kind of living would a supplement creator for tabletop games expect to make? What sort of uh, you know income is feasible, and is it something to do uh, as a as a main source of revenue, or does it need to be um, you know supplemented with you know does is it part of a diverse revenue stream? Depends on where you live. Oh, interesting. What do you mean? I by live that? in California. Okay. And where I live, I need at least. 65 to 70 K a year to live. Mm-hmm. I do not quite earn that yet on my tabletop products. Um, I, I need to at least double my revenue flow um, to hit that. And so right now tabletop is currently my supplemental and that's purely because of where I'm living and how I am living. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I lived elsewhere, this could be a different story, but California is my home and it's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I'm sorry. I'm not laughing at that. I know. It's just, <laughs> I know. I know. You know, laughing is oftentimes a means of relieving nervous energy, and you have to laugh or or break down into sobs. And so, I'm sorry for that. That is a shitty situation to be it's, in. No. Yeah. It, as much as I would love to do full time, I have tried it, and mm. the problem is standard of living that we're looking at, or the cities that we want to live, it's just too expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if we want to live like you know, like we just bought a house. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is right. Uh, and I live in Los Angeles currently. Um, so right now, like I have to work another job somewhere, uh, mm-hmm. whether it's, I would love to get in the games industry and like apply the knowledge that I've got and the skills I have for my current job, for my, like my publishing into something like mm-hmm. I've been making stabs at trying to get in the right games or other game studios in the area. Um, I'm still working on that. So uh, is that but, a long-term goal for you is to make that type of transition? I mean, three years is a long-term goal. Like, uh, it's actually a short-term goal right now. Uh, that's where I'm. That's where I'm currently pushing for now. Okay. Um, but even then, I would still be doing my publishing stuff probably on the side or diminished to some degree. Okay. Um, but from a standard of living side, people have definitely lived their life on tabletop RPGs. It's a matter of, yeah, yeah. exactly. We have a great example. Um, but it's a matter of you know your products how much you want like there's a level of investment into them and seriousness into getting into the industry and making a profit from it and how you structure it and it can be done uh, mm-hmm. and i'll let jb talk more about that yeah jb please so i used to live in mississippi and mississippi is it has not gotten the reputation as being the poorest state in the united states without deserving it uh, my cost of living 
it's going to melt some of your faces off. So be be prepared, Andreas. <laughs> oh, no. But my cost of living when I lived in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, was five hundred dollars a month. Holy shit! That's the apartment, the power, the internet, the food, the gas, the everything was about five hundred and fifty-ish dollars a month. And you could definitely do that with what I would earn from my company paying myself. I could definitely do that. And yeah. and I'm sorry, you, you said you, you don't live in Mississippi anymore? I did move. Okay. As well as being very poor, it's also exceedingly racist. And uh, I did not yeah. want to live there. Uh, yes. uh, That's a rough so trade-off, man. Currently, I live in Las Vegas. And Las Vegas is actually somewhere in the middle ground between living somewhere like Indiana, for instance, and somewhere like California. It's a hub where I can fly out and go to all these conventions and I can meet with people. People can visit fairly cheaply. I have friends here and it's worked out fairly well. But mm-hmm. when I moved to Las Vegas, I was looking for a brick and mortar uh, job at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I was living with my best friend and his fiance or his wife at the time. And as I was looking for these jobs and the job market's a little saturated in 2018 when I moved here, it wasn't looking great. Yeah, I could get a job at a restaurant somewhere. I could get a job sweeping, that sort of thing. But when you're not known in the area and you haven't moved over your driver's license and you don't have your own place, people are pretty wary. But then I started noticing, you know, I'm making, you know, five, six hundred dollars a month off of Patreon. And then mm-hmm. I've got my sales on the DMs Guild. I had never focused on any of that. I just made stuff to help my own home games and publish them. But I was starting to get a bit of a reputation and people were starting to like the stuff that I was making. So I thought, well, to supplement my income until I find a job, I'll start making more tabletop stuff and I'll be publishing it for the DMs Guild for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. And two months later, I was making... Oops way more than I had made previously at my restaurant job. And I've worked construction and logging and like I've had a thousand jobs over my life, but restaurant, I love food. If anyone's Mm -hmm. ever followed me on Twitter, they realize that (laughs) right on. And when I started looking at the income that I was making from tabletop, I started to realize that I could pay my bills and have a little bit left over. So if I could make X number of dollars organically beyond what I was making on tabletop, I could be fine. And so far it's been two years and I've not had to go look for a job yet. I'm still just doing tabletop stuff. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Very Uh, cool. And I think a huge part of that, and we touched on it for the Kickstarter, is reputation, right? Mm -hmm. Because... When you're first starting a Kickstarter and you put out the idea, I want $15,000 to make this thing, people are very, very wary because they have been burned. Celebrities in the tabletop sphere have burned people for tens That's of dollars. Right. <clears throat> uh, I'm not uh, going uh, I'm to sorry. What, what was that? Uh. <laughs> uh, but uh, There's a creator that's done a series of Kickstarters that's burned people, uh, yeah. Pencil Dice being one of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, Go ahead. Also, Orion Habaka, I can never say his last name, but a member of Critical Role even splintered off and started doing things promising, mm-hmm. not fulfilling. It's very damaging for the entire community. Yeah. But 
when people realized that this was me, I wanted to make good products, I wanted to make high quality stuff, I wanted to listen to feedback and develop new things that people wanted, people felt more safe buying my products on launch. Mm -hmm. And then, as I said before we started the podcast, what I like to do is whenever a product of mine reaches 200 sales, I'll go back and remake the whole fucking thing. I'll check every word, I'll re-edit it, I'll do new layout, I'll do new art. Anything that I think does not live up to my standards at the uh -huh. time, I change. Uh -huh. And right. people love it. Because they feel like their product is evolving over time. And that as my efforts and my abilities increase to make these products, I'm not leaving my old stuff to wallow in pity. <laughs> I'm yeah. actually trying to increase my entire portfolio, not just my newest work, to match what I want for all of my products to be uh, production-wise. Right, right. And growing that reputation is the only way I can see someone living full-time doing content creating like this. Right. I so, totally... Oh, I, can I take over for two seconds? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I totally agree with the reputation. Like for me, my reputation started in the Numenera community when it first dropped from Monica Games. I was part of the creator community there that was making like, that's where I started to learn to make PDFs was creating fan PDFs of the system there. And then when I did my Kickstarter, I already had four or five products under my belt under Numenera. And then I did a Kickstarter. And so I had the reputation of that community. And they definitely helped me push my help push that Kickstarter along. Um, the two questions I had for you, JB, was um, one would love to talk, hear you talk about growing a Patreon, because that is something that like, for me, that's like nearly impossible because of the product. So which leads into my second question. For the scale of your products, what is your production schedule like? Is it something that you can put out in a few days? Because my products tend to take six to eight months to produce and develop. So uh, it's very variable, I've found. But as for growing a Patreon, a lot of people neglect the community and the humanity in their brand and their products. I don't want people to join my Patreon for the coupons or for the monthly rewards or for early access to my PDFs. It's fantastic if they want to, but I want them to join the Patreon for me and for that connection with me. When a patron asks me a question, I'll get on Zoom with them. Like, you know, we, we can talk about it. I can help them however I want. And that's something that a single creator can do that you know, a larger business can't. And capitalizing on that, I think, is a revenue stream a lot of people do not look into enough. No, because, really, that's really cool. Exactly. If you are working six months on a product, you said, and I've done eight months on one before, uh, Taverns and Tap Rooms, like I said. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. I didn't know that was yours. That's awesome. Yes, thank you. Uh, the fact that you knew about it and didn't know about me is weird, <laughs> but uh, I, I don't have it. I haven't purchased it. I see it on Twitter though a lot. Yeah, which that's, is, that's I know really blows my mind. <laughs> uh, but you know, if you're doing an eight-month project and you have three hundred dollars, let's say, or even one hundred dollars coming in on Patreon, if you do have a job 
and you do have a primary source of income, the entire Patreon, even if it's just a few dollars, can go into that product and not have to be paid by you and not have to be paid by a Kickstarter, right? Mm -hmm. So if I need a $500 cover for a product, I have it because of Patreon. And that's one month of my Patreon, like back in 2018 when I started things. I just took my whole Patreon one month and I paid for everything I needed on a product. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote it over the course of a couple months and I published it. And now I'm making money off of that product. So that so, kind of goes, oh, go ahead. Sorry. You create the revenue streams no, that add up. and I have a feeling that Jovi was just about to say, like, that's the investment part of it. Yeah. You put that money in and then you let that money grow through the product. Mm-hmm. So Patreon, like, please don't sleep on it. Because mm-hmm. if you get 15, 20 people to give you two, three, five dollars, that can make a huge difference over time, especially if you don't micromanage the Patreon. But I've known people that have 1,500 patrons giving them $10 a month. And you know, that's world-changing. That means every dollar that you make otherwise, your finances and your living expenses are paid for just from the people showing you monthly support. Yeah. And I keep telling people that that $1 a month on Patreon changes people's lives. Yeah. yeah. Never, yeah. ever underestimate the value of your $1. It yeah. is yeah. insane. And that yeah, goes back me, to, sorry, I just want real, real quickly, yeah, I right. want to comment that that kind of, that also ties back into what you were saying about developing the reputation, you know, cause it's, there's, there's a lot of variability. A lot of people get hung up on this thing of like, well, what should I do with my Patreon, my Patreon? Like what kind of things should I offer? What kind of, uh, rewards, tiers, etc. Um, and I think this kind of speaks to this idea that it, it's, it's, there's no formula for you know what you should be doing with your Patreon. A lot of it is based on who you are and what you're doing and having done it consistently and long enough that people can kind of like pick up on the effort. And then it almost, not that it doesn't matter, but then it's like you tailor your Patreon to that, you know? So it's almost like Patreon builds itself. Once you have something in line that people are familiar with that you can then say, okay, here's the places where you can jump in and, and help support the whole thing. So uh, a few of my friends run podcasts like yourselves. Mm -hmm. And I asked them, you know, how's your Patreon doing? Like, well, we haven't made one. We're not sure what we would do. We don't want to record bonus episodes because it's so hard to record primary episodes. I do not blame them at all. And no one should. And I'm like, well, you know, what about you as people? Like, what are you putting into Patreon? You know, what are you saying are you having everyone make posts for patreon and just slice of life like this is what's happening with me people love that shit (laughs) like they cannot get enough myself included i want to know what the creators i enjoy watching and listening to are doing with their lives like the personal things that they want me to know i eat it up and i will pay for Mm -hmm. it Mm -hmm. and that's where your patreon can come in uh-huh. So every week I do a post of a magic item for Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition and the comments and like uh, the actual text for the post has almost nothing to do with it. It's me talking about new recipes I'm trying, uh-huh. it's giving an update on if I'm still feeling sick or not, it's about my apartment complex. Involving people in your life 
is fantastic on Patreon because I think it helps retention. I think mm-hmm. it helps people understand who you are as a person and it grows your personal brand. Very cool. Very cool. Um, well, setting that aside just for a moment, um, I want to come back to the topic of, of products um, and, and skip down or skip ahead quickly um, to tie it back in though to something. Um, are there product types that do that reliably do better than than others other some that may be more or less risky adventures typically aren't i mean they're very specific and they need to have a very specific brand or tone to them uh Mm -hmm. to do well um usually people look at a product and be what can i use in this uh for dnd specifically there's a lot of what creature, location, story, or character can I create? Um, and those are usually the big things. And a distinctive art style really helps with that. Okay. The populace is a liar. Every single poll I have ever read, <laughs> people say, I love to buy adventures. And they oh, sell really? one-tenth as well as everything else. What? If you Emily make- had a... Emily had uh, sent her answers to this question in advance, and she said the same thing. She said adventures sell thing. poorly, while deep DM supplements uh, sell very well. So what's going on there? Like what? what One of is the top-selling products is literally a list of roll tables. <laughs> I, I I am baffled by it. Yeah, I have a product that is uh, I think a gold bestseller, meaning it sold over fifteen hundred copies. That is just one hundred greetings for NPCs to tell the party. Because DMs want to know what the hell to do when they have five, six, eleven people Uh sitting at this table waiting for them to run a game. Uh Like, you'll pay five bucks if you don't have to think up an NPC name, what they look like, what they say. Uh But adventures hold too many hands. They're too cumbersome to utilize in different ways. Yes, you can strip them apart for parts and use them all over the place, but people have 30 years of that with Dungeons & Dragons already. There are publications that go all the way back to the 80s that they can still steal from. They want things tailored to make the DM's life just a micron easier when they're running this game. Can yeah, you, can the, just quickly, sorry, okay. can can you uh, do like a, a quick outline of what the differences are there? Like what is an adventure compared to some sure. of this DM supplemental mm. material? For those of you that don't know specifically, an adventure for Dungeons and Dragons says the party, your group of players, will get together and they will attempt to stop this dragon, for instance. The party is set in this place. It's set in Vasselheim. It is going to stop a dragon. The dragon wants to awaken a dragon god. And then the adventure will take you from point to point throughout that, like an outline that you would see in school for a novel. Mm -hmm. Point to point, just like a novel, with branching little narratives, depending on how the party does and where the party goes. Mm. But a DM supplement would say, here is a dragon god. Here are its stats. Here's what it wants. Here's the people that would worship it. Here is the dragon that worships it, you know? So it gives you the pieces without all the interconnected tissue, whereas an adventure has all that interconnected tissue 
and goes point A, point B, point C. Even the greatest sandboxes in the world go point A, point B, point C. Right. Because right, it's the right, only right. way that you can possibly outline it without 40,000 pages. Okay. But when you get rid of all that interconnectivity, you don't need 40,000 pages. You need 25 good pages. And every person running the game can just open up to that page and they have this resource, this raw material that they can shape to fit their story. That's the big difference between a DM supplement and an adventure. Okay. So uh, I know some of the people that are watching this, either live or recorded, are artists who have been doing their world building for like five to ten years. They have their dream project in mind. Uh, what advice would you give to people like that that may not know exactly what products to make? Maybe they think they want to make one single giant product, or if you would suggest making smaller products along the way, then release them uh, periodically, or what advice would you give to someone like that? I would say it depends on the financial status. So like, obviously, if they're looking to kickstart or looking to create an anthology, um, there's a lot of great other Kickstarters out there in terms of like artists who've made like a book project that they've been working on for years or small comics that they're turning into a giant one. Scurry is one of them. Uh, it's like a, a mouse people. It's like a Rats of Nim almost. Um, but it, essentially, like they made multiple, they did a one book and then and that was like a good couple hundred pages. And then they did another graphic novel and another graphic novel of like part one, part two, part three. And those were separate projects. Um, it really depends on the organization and what flows nice as a product, but it's something you should definitely think about before you launch anything, um, or depending on if you've started on it. If you're looking at it, applying it to tabletop, uh, if you have an art project or an art world that you want to bring to tabletop, bring out your setting. Uh, it's obviously, if you, if you want to market it towards tabletop people, it's best to, like in this case, if you're looking to bring it to D&D, talk to people in the community who can try to, who can understand the industry and one, figure out the best way to present it because a setting book is good and it can be interesting, but the players need to be able to express themselves in that world, become the characters in that world and do the cool things that your cool illustrated characters can do. And so there's like, you know, the player's guide. The setting book is good because it gives broad info, but like the adventures, you know, the dragon god, we want to be able to kill the dragon god, so I want stats for it. I want stats to kill the cultists. And under those, we can have notes about, oh, they're trying to summon the dragon god. Hey, the dragon god's a couple pages later. Ooh, I can make an adventure out of this. So you don't have to tell the story. And if you do have a story written, it can still be converted into a setting mm -hmm. or, or even like a small setting. Um, there are things that I've produced that are system agnostic, and then we create supplements later that um, integrate into the various tabletop game systems that exist. Um, I don't know if that's the most successful way of doing it, but it works a little bit for us. Um, but there are very many ways to go about it. But if you want to just go for the biggest fish, you'd create a D&D supplement for your world and maybe do a setting book, a system companion, or even just one book at that point, depending on how much work you want to put into it or have other people contribute. So earlier... So my oh. Go ahead. No, you, you, you go ahead, JB, because I can yeah, save this off one. Of that, uh, from my reviewer perspective, because I did do that for a substantial portion of my time with Tabletop, 
if I saw a world book with nothing else about it, I would not bite. So there would not be anything there to draw me in or to hook me, even if it looked like a fantastic world book. If there's no surrounding world about it outside of that book, it's not going to interest me very much. Mm. But something that's started to happen organically in the world right now for tabletop games specifically is you can look at Swords Fall on Twitter and Kickstarter and everywhere else. Swords Fall began as an idea, and that is the truest sense of Kickstarter when it first started out, is to present these ideas and let people bite themselves. And what they did is they made art, they made short stories, they developed these small little things for people to engage with and build little bit by little bit more and more interest about it. People would see Swords Fall and they would think, wait, what is that a game? Can I play that? And the game is coming out soon-ish, because we all know how these products go, right? But the fact that they've gotten so much support and so much buzz up until now without even having a game means that they're doing something right. So if you have a setting and you release a novel about it, like Name of the Wind, the RPG, yeah, Mm -hmm. it's going to do great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) People are going to buy it up. People are going to obsess over it. A Harry Potter RPG, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna hit it right out of the park. You know, as long as J.K. Rowling's not actually involved, you're fine. <laughs> mm. And that is very sad. I know that we laugh about it, but I again, know. nervous energy. I know a yeah. lot of people were really really hurt about that, but we're mm-hmm. here with you. Uh, so you have to have something that grabs hold of it before you can build a bigger product. So I would really suggest that if people do have that idea for a setting and they have that idea that they want to manipulate and build, make a Patreon, make a Twitter for it, get some art, build things up. Don't go too quickly because if you just swing away just to do a huge world book, not a lot of people are going to have much to go off of for that. Yeah. So try to start small. I think the small releases, like Moose was saying, a few small releases and then a big one mm. will probably be your best bet for that mm. sort of thing. You're starting to build smaller to, content, uh, right? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of artists I see, like they'll show whip like, Oh, here is this world I'm building based on this, you know, and then they'll mm. show whip art of all the characters. They'll show color art of the characters. They'll, you know, it's just showing off what, what they're building. And in that, you know, you build interest. Um, and especially if you're an artist, like that's even better because, you know, the artist communities can be fairly large and supportive. Uh, when you're showing off, you know, cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, and you have to be part of that community too. You have to engage with other people's creations and support them as well. Like you can't just be the solo person. Like, why is nobody liking my stuff? Like, <laughs> you got to engage yeah. with the world there too. So you guys have both mentioned something about art now. Uh, and earlier, Andreas, you sort of uh, mentioned specifically that um, you know some kind of. Uh, a, a I can't remember now exactly how you put it, but a an eye catching art style or um uh artwork having good artwork involved somehow is important. So what's the criteria there for you as far as like you know stylistically and 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 quality wise? Um, what uh, what are you what are you looking for, and what how important how much of an impact do you think that you know finding like the right art and the good art is to to all of this? Whether I think you're a good artist yeah. is interesting because 
you know, art is very subjective. And so what I look for as a creator is sort of evocative would be the best way I can put it. Um, it makes you think about the piece. Um, my first, um, my first product was concept art. Uh, it was created by a speed paint artist that did that specialized in concept art and digital painting. Uh, and so it was all, I like to sole or single source art for a lot of my projects, um, because that makes styling easier because you get mm -hmm. the same artist, the same art style throughout the whole thing. Right. That's sort of changed a little bit recently, but a lot, it's a lot easier to work with one artist on one project and you can kind of share the vision. And what I look for is a good, like aesthetic style. So usually if you're looking for it to, um, if you're looking for a cartoony style, um, like for what we had in Scavengers, it was a very cartoony, lighthearted, um, bright colors style. But then we have like the pixel art of Hyperlight Drifter. And then we have the painted um, evocative of um, non-player cards. There's a theme that runs consistent through them in their visual style. And I, for me, I let the artist run with it. So I usually give them prompts and let them do what they want. Um, and finding the artist that can put out the vision that I think fits the product that I'm making. Mm -hmm. So some artists can, you know, if sometimes you see an artist and you want, I want him to make this project because he can do a cool style that I think would bring this out really nicely. Like you have some artists that do really cool black and gold foil work. I think that would make a really awesome project. I don't know what to do with it yet, but I think <laughs> it would look really beautiful. All right. um, and that thing about making it consistent and like having it go throughout the entire product. And I think if you are an artist, like on one hand, you know, developing a style definitely helps bring, make a uniqueness to what your work is and what you offer. But being obviously that one style won't carry you alone because you have to work with other people's styles mm -hmm. when you go work in the broader industry. Um, so for amongst the, uh, the, the, the products that you guys put out, you know, some of the more major products that you guys have put out or been involved in, in putting out. What is the range of income after expenses, estimations or averages um, that, you know, would be typical to expect from that? And how much time would be typical of, you know, of, of putting into any one of those? I know, Andreas, you mentioned six to eight months, you know, and is that like most is that most typical of what you're doing or? Yeah. Yeah. So my projects are typically like 100 page fully illustrated hardbound books mm -hmm. um right and those typically run a, with the the quality that i run for run for a pretty hefty price tag mostly because of art quality um so i'm paying artists 300 to 500 per piece mm -hmm. uh, which which adds up really quickly um but if you're looking at uh but typically profit wise the point of the Kickstarter is to pay for the production. And so once I have produced all my books, I now have a, you know, 800, whatever, 500 books. And if they're selling at $25 a piece after the $4 of production, um, and then, you know, you guys, your shipping and whatever, uh, you're probably looking at $15 of, of profit per book, which okay. typically get reinvested into your next projects or whatever contingencies or shipping mistakes you made. And, then 
Yeah, and it just goes into there and it feeds into the next project that creates a budget for you to prepay your next project and then mm -hmm. the cycle restarts itself. Mm -hmm. So the vast majority of my publications are digital so that I don't have to worry about shipping and production and handling all of that, especially since I live in an apartment and I live in Vegas. Right, right. Notoriously, it's really shitty here <laughs> to mail things out. Okay. Uh, but because I do publications that are digital, I can cut the price down by two-thirds sometimes. But that's another trip up with the tabletop industry is people do expect about 35 pages for like $2. And that is just not going to cut it anymore moving forward. So if you are an up-and-coming tabletop creator or producer, I strongly urge you to increase your prices because all the work goes into it the same as a book other than the shipping and handling the actual physical resources. But usually I can get anywhere between zero profit and an entire year's worth of living expenses profit. Mm. And it's a huge, sweeping, wide margin. Okay. That's the trade-off for not doing a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe to make the product myself. I take all of that risk and I do reap some rewards and I do sometimes have a limit on my hands that I just have to try and make sell over the course of a year or two. So how do you guys like to balance content versus price? Uh, do you have, you know, a guide that you sort of that, that, uh, uh, do you have rule of thumb that kind of guides your decisions there or does popularity of content change that equation or how does that work out for you? There used to be, I know some people tried to do like a cost per page um, and that's a very weird way of doing it. So typically like if it's one to five pages, you could probably sell it for $2 to $5. If it's 30, if it's, you know, 20 to 30 pages, you should be selling it for five and up easily. Um, if it's more than that, then you should be looking at 10 to 20 easily. Um, and then typically things taper off around there. Typically 1999 is the most people want to pay for PDFs, but that's, that's the whole, like, you know, how many people are going to buy it versus how many am I going to sell? And I've had, I've had people message me about a $2 PDF and say, I would never <laughs> pay you a dollar for yeah, digital. Yeah. Try and, and like, charge okay, $500 for an illustration. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, don't buy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me. yeah. Yeah, I know for Caretaker Warlock, I got some flack from people and it's like, you know, 20 page PDF and I'm selling it for five bucks, you know, and it's like, you know how much I paid for art on this? Like three, six, nine, 12, 15. Like I need to earn some money back on this, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the equation that Andreas was talking about used to be people would say, I'm not willing to pay more than 10 cents per page rounded up to the nearest 95 cents. Wow. So a hundred page fully illustrated PDF front and back cover proofread role played play tested with marketing people like 10 bucks or I'm not buying it. Mm. That's just how they were. Mm. And yeah, there's like I milestone. Suffered, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I suffered for a few years thinking that that was right because yeah. I would go to places like we mentioned previously in the podcast, like Reddit, Facebook, I would ask people's mm -hmm. opinions. Uh, don't do any of that. <laughs> don't don't go to Facebook. Don't ask opinions. 
Right. Don't don't do any of it. Talk to your peers, and that's it. Yeah. Because no one's going to value your work the same. Yeah. You're going to have people that see 100 NPC greetings, and they're like, thank God, I need this so badly, and they're willing mm-hmm. to pay $3 for it, which is fair, I believe. It was only three pages, NPC greetings, no art, just my layout. It took me two days to make $3. It made sense. Yeah. But I've had publications, an adventure path, for instance, that tied into a Wizards of the Coast product that I released that was 60 pages, took me two months to make, fully illustrated with a, color, or with a cover and maps and everything else. I asked 15 for it, and I think I've sold 50 copies in two and a half years. Yeah, so, I mean, the, you're, you're always going to have these things where people are not willing to pay for something, and then the very next person is willing to pay you $50 for it and not bat an eye. So don't ask the world. Ask your peers what their experiences have been. The, yeah, actual yeah. art, actual artists that do digital media specifically, for tabletop, you should be paid no less than $75 for what you're doing. It sucks. Like You're going to exclude some people from that. You're going to have some problems. But if a tabletop company asks you for a piece of art and they're not willing to pay you $75 bare minimum, do not talk to them. They're scamming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ridiculously the, low. The, the, par- the the parallels in a lot of what you just said to you know the 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 world of the artist in particular is 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 huge you know and i mean artists take a lot of comfort hearing from other artists you know that that other people go through um the the twitter effect so to speak you know of tell people telling you that shit's too high too expensive your art your art isn't worth it blah 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 so i feel like it's even doubly refreshing to hear from you guys that are in a related yet also distinct industry and the same thing is happening where people just don't yes. understand and you can't really be too mad at them yes their delivery could be better in a lot of circumstances but you can't be too mad because like it's just you don't understand and I, I love conversations like this because it's just like one, however tiny the drop might be, putting this drop out into the internet bucket, you know? So it's just like another piece of information floating around out there that people can hopefully take in and understand. Like, these, you know, we're no one's getting rich doing this. Like Andreas was saying, you know, like the amount of money that you are going to make is largely going to be put back into the next project. You know, you love doing it, you love making the content. That's at the base of it. The amount of money that you make from it, it's nice, but you know, you're you're really just trying to just pay yourself for the fucking time. So there's <laughs> also a half life on all of this for tabletop. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's a tabletop boom right now, mm-hmm. but there was also one 30 years ago, mm-hmm. and then it relatively fell off the face of the world. I think a substantial portion of why tabletop is kind of blowing up right now is video games suck lately (laughs) like (laughs) back in the 90s we had video games that fit on a cd that took us four weeks to beat and had all this lore and voice acting and today you know people are looking at the digital art and the digital medium of it and like we've said you have to pay your artists if you want Mm -hmm. to look good you have to pay your artists Mm -hmm. remember back then when they said uh world of warcraft was causing problems for D &D games right (laughs) because people weren't meeting up anymore and they just wanted to go on raids right but 
it's this ease of access that makes tabletop great in a way. And a lot of people don't understand why a tabletop green is great until they realize that there are no bumper rails. You can do pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. piggybacking off of that with the idea that artists kind of suffer for their work, it is true. If you like tabletop RPGs, if you like digital art, if you like you know, oil paints, you're going to have to suffer for the short term to make it start working. Mm-hmm. Because I did have to work slinging pizza for three weeks and invest all of that money into a product because I wanted to make something cool. I wanted to make something that looked great and that a publisher would want to pick up. Right. And, and there's always that the upfront cost. Yeah. It also depends on the art that you're producing because like mm-hmm. if you look at the works of like Crystal Soli or um He's John, fantastic, there's, there's a whole way. bunch of artists that you know are you Withered's artists or Magic the uh, Magic the Gathering, previous Magic the Gathering artists. Like if you're in that echelon of quality, um like ending up on Humblewood kind of stuff, um all of those artists are very high rate artists. Um and you can if you are of that quality, like you can definitely like easily break out into your own thing if you are establishing that kind of type of fantasy content, um, which is a very hard type of art to really bring out. Uh, one thing that has worked for me, because I've had some artists that are fairly renowned, like Ali Briggs, for instance, mm. and Nikki Doll. Friend of the stream, yeah. I've had uh, I've had some people make stuff for me that I should never have been able to afford. Mm. It's really a uh, a price over time issue. So if you tell your artist, when I first worked with Allie Briggs, I messaged her when I put the first word on the page for taverns, inns, and tap rooms, and I said I want you specifically to do a cover for this PDF. I love your work. I want you to do it. How much will it cost me? She's like, well, when do you need it by? I'm like, whenever you finish it. If you need six months, we can do it in six months. And she's like, all right. And gave me a much, 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 much lower price because I gave her this open door. And I told her, take all the time you need. I want this to be something you're proud of. I want this to be great. Mm-hmm. The second time, I knew she could do it, she was ready, and I could pay her more because my first one took off. So Taverns, Inns, and Taprooms in Hell, she did the art for that cover. And it was just as good and just as mind-blowing, but she knew that I loved her work, that I would be there to support her with any feedback, that I would not be a problem client, and that I had already paid her. <laughs> already paying your artist once makes them very susceptible to work for you again. Like. It's all about the humanity of it. The humanity of all of this stuff makes such a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I've done collaborations with artists as well, um, where like Sarah Dollinger, for example, um, great fantasy artist or great creature artist, uh, she posted something on Facebook and we ended up building a book together. Um, She had a bunch of creature anatomies and creature variants and we ended up making Atlas Anomalia together. Um, and so like, you know, an art piece can turn into a product on its own mm-hmm. or art pieces that you think is a concept, um, whether, I mean, I don't know if me randomly emailing you saying, Hey, do you want to make this a book? <laughs> um, <laughs> is because you're probably going to get emails from a couple people that tell you that, 
Um, and so when you're dealing with people who reach out to you to say like, hey, do you want to make this a product? Uh, you definitely do have to look out for yourself and what you're getting back from it. Um, and so like for Sarah Dollinger, that project ended up being like a hundred pieces of art for her. Um, and so we hired her um, to create the book. She's a co-creator of the book. Uh, she still has the rights to use the art as she sees fit. Uh, and then we just retain it for publishing use. And then so, she gets royalties on prints. Cool. Sarah's also going to be uh, on, the, on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks. So that's cool. Oh, nice. Just to interject, uh, what you can expect to uh, pay an artist of this caliber is anywhere from 500 to $5,000 for the cover. And then interior illustrations, $300 to $1,000 is not unheard of for the amount of time they're going to be spending on these things. So you're going to be paying for the quality if you're going to be targeting this level of artist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then also, like, if you are looking to be budget per se, like, I, I guess, like, you know, some artists, you know, if they have a quick style, if they want to, you know, do speed paints. I used my first pieces that I hired people for was from the speed paint group on Facebook, the daily speed paint group. And that was, you know, three prompts in 20 minutes to make something. And so people, I approached those people to do pieces because like, oh, you know, like how, you know, this takes you only a half hour to make. Um, and, you know, that's as a, like today, that's kind of like kind of a bad thing because, you know, I should pay for their experience, not for their time. Um, but those people were, you know, students in architecture school. They were, they weren't looking to earn money as an artist, but they, they took the job or those jobs because, you know, hey, cool, I'm earning something from this. And at the time for me, it felt, you know, it was okay because I'm paying someone for work that they thought was cool and interesting. Mm -hmm. um, when I hired Aaron Eric for his, for the non-player cards, which was 400 pieces of speed paint art, um, wow. we paid him on a monthly basis. Oh, wow. Uh, and That's I cool. think I hired him for six months of full-time pay. And he was able to pay his way out of mandatory military service in Istanbul, in Turkey. And then he got married that year too. So it was like, holy shit. Like, I would love to get to the point where I could have an artist on retainer. Ugh. I know. Oh, that'd be so great. Yeah. I'll so pay you dollars a month. So, artists, so artists listening, take heart. There are good people in this game that do want to pay you what you're worth what you are worth uh, it's it's not all a, a bunch of and a lot of people will ask there. for your rate too so like be sure your rates are what you want them to be and, and be firm about them too reevaluate and reevaluate mm. them too mm. because like for me i don't feel comfortable saying we can pay i mean some only recently i've been felt comfortable to say like oh we're gonna pay 500 dollars a piece for people that i reach out to and uh interact with but i'm going to evaluate their portfolios then and it's a lot more of a formal process but if I reach out to a specific artist I want to work with, I want to know what their but what you know what their rates are for their piece because I don't feel comfortable saying like you know oh I want to make an entire book out of their work I don't know how much it's going to cost to them or like them time wise or work wise. Mm -hmm. so conversely, conversely, I'm usually like I like your work how much, mm -hmm. and then if I can yeah, afford exactly. it, if I can afford it, we move forward. If I can't, I say I love your work. I'm sorry I can't afford it. I'll come yeah. back if I can. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes people work in the middle, you know, like what if I hire, like what if I just need you for 10 pieces, maybe not 50 or something like that, if we can do a discount or whatever, like if you want to be flexible, but sure. be firm on your own bottom line. 
Yeah, that's that's what I was referring to. And as far as being firm about it, like, you know, be confident in the fact that that your work has has value, um, because, like I said, people there are people do understand We're, look for them, like rather than trying to raise yourself to the bottom, look for the people that are going to uh, appreciate your work. Um, shifting back around a little bit, um, when you guys are getting ready to promo something, JB, I know you said that you're in the habit of waiting until afterwards. Um, but regardless of the of the timing, um, though, I would like to know a little bit about that as well. Uh, what are the types of places that you guys do go to? I know one of you mentioned staying off of Reddit. Um, how what 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 does it look like for you guys to start doing the marketing and the advertising and generating the hype train? You can directly see the the difference in approaches almost just kind of based off of how I present myself on Twitter Hmm. is that I like people who know me to see the product I'm putting out. Hmm. That means that I need to know some bigger people in the world and have them help share things around, but I'm not Hmm. trying to reach very broadly. I want people who are already interested in what I do to pick up my thing and see it and like it and enjoy it and give me feedback. So I tend to target the audiences that I have on Discord, Twitter, Patreon, another one where people who hate Twitter are going to go to Patreon and see those emails. Don't Uh ignore it. I always go to places where I already have a good, strong foundation of people interested in my work, and I just hammer it over and over again. Because the thing about Twitter and Facebook specifically, I have close personal friends who have done streams and made products in the past two weeks I did not see on Twitter or Facebook. You cannot retweet too much. Mm. The algorithms are not going to let you oversaturate that market. It's going to make people stop seeing it. It's going to make people look at other things. Use those algorithms to your advantage. Mm-hmm. I retweet most of the products that I release about 15 times a day for the first two weeks that they're out. I don't do anything else. And those tweets keep generating for a few months. Afterwards. When you say you retweet them, you do you, I mean, you're not, as, retweet. yeah, you're, I okay. refresh, I refresh any posts. I make new posts. I mm. interact with the posts that I've already made because mm. those algorithms, what they're going to do specifically Twitter. It's where I've kind of figured things out the most. The algorithms, anytime you interact with the post, a new comment, a new like, a new retweet from yourself, it's going to show it to new people, not the same people over again, right? Mm -hmm. So if I post something at 10 a.m. PST, just in time for lunch on the East Coast and just in time for people waking up elsewhere in the world, and I retweet it every couple hours or two or three times at the high point for Twitter traffic, There are still people that I know personally who never see it, even Mm -hmm. if they interact with my other posts, just because of how the algorithm works. Mm -hmm. So you can't oversaturate those personal, small social media markets. Mm -hmm. Retweet, repost, like, share, do it over and over and over and over again. So what you're saying is that when you do that, when you when you retweet or repost, you know, or quote tweet or whatever, you're not running the risk of bombarding people that have already seen it three times with like a fourth time or or it's not really 
not the the chances of them seeing it more than two or three times mm-hmm. unless they only follow eight people which they're not oh, going to yeah. really yeah, care right, right. you know the chances okay. of them seeing it more than two or three times are infinitesimally oh, small that's really interesting to know about twitter yeah. okay I Good. have never had anyone complain about seeing something that I posted too often. Okay. And even if they do, worst case scenario is that person unfollows or they mute you, for instance. Mm-hmm. They can also mute the thread, but I know a lot of people like to drive in nails with a forklift. We all know how people <laughs> act. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you may ostracize one or two people if they see it and just have a bad day and mm-hmm. overreact. But if you reach 10 new people by doing it, you're still at a net positive. Mm-hmm. And people that know you know that you're excited for this thing that you did. You spent six months writing about taverns, even though you don't drink or go out, you know? <laughs> so people tend to, tend to reveal the humanity in that nature, too. They're like, he's excited about this. It'll pass. And then that'll be it. So you're, so Twitter is kind of like your main jam. I mean, do you do anything on Facebook or Instagram or like, are you, are you do move in any like discord, uh, communities or. I do grow a discord community and I did do a lot with Facebook and Facebook groups, but, uh, due to security risks and overlap oh. with communities that I do not want to be anywhere near my community. I did take a huge step back on Facebook. Mm. I update it when a new product launches and when I do something interesting. And that's basically it. So Mm -hmm. people that are friends and family that want to keep an easy way to check on me can use Facebook. And Mm -hmm. I do have a lot of followers there too. But I've passed 10,000 followers on Twitter just because constantly doing little giveaways and interacting with them and building this community being very vocal about getting rid of bigotry in the community okay. has been something that I've done since I started on Twitter because of my experiences with Reddit and Discord. And I would love to do Instagram, but I forget it exists. I really wow. need to work That's a on that. Bold statement. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's sometimes hard to keep track of all of it. And since Instagram is primarily aimed towards the phone and mobile markets, mm. I don't really, I mean, I keep my phone on my desk all day, but it's not something that I keep actively on. I do need to get better about that because I know a lot of artists have had a lot of success with their digital works there. Mm -hmm. It is sometimes hard to translate PDFs and tabletop documents into that way, but you can always share out your artist's work. And I do need to start doing that, tagging those artists and building that community too. The one thing I'm going to add is uh, Emily's, uh, response the first thing she mentioned was Discord. And you can find Dungeons and Dragons related Discords out there. Um, have either of you guys reached out to those uh, other big servers that were created by other people for their own communities to see if they'll flash onto your products, or does that not work so well? Interesting, because it depends on how much of a. It's like the forums, like it depends on how much of an active member you are of those communities. Um, some places uh, will have a shameless plug section, um, which then you can obviously post your stuff there and see if people notice it, depending on how active the Discord is. Um, typically, I mean, it can be a hit or miss depending on your ta- or depending on your tracking, but like sometimes you'll get a few people from uh, bigger ones depending on which ones you interact with. 
uh don lee mentioned in the chat uh for jb a question um <laughs> is that twitter strategy effective no matter what your twitter following size i was just typing out a reply oh, but i'd love yeah. to actually right. say it yeah yeah uh so i do believe so and here's the big thing right i don't just tweet about the things i want to sell people that is such a bad move it's a mm. bad move on any platform yeah if you do email chains or uh, subscriber lists for email don't also just message them when you have something you want to sell it's scummy and people don't like it right. people don't engage with it and i think the drop off is somewhere in 35 percent overall engagements if all you talk about is what you're making to sell so if you have a good presence and if you're tweeting about your food, if you're treating about this thing that excites you, this new movie, this new book, these things that you're taking inspiration from, your family, your personal life, and you're giving them several opportunities to engage with something you're selling or you're creating, mm -hmm. people tend to interact pretty well with it. I saw an uptick about 15% when I was real small, like under 100 followers. And as people started to learn more about me, they became more invested in the success of my products and this they is, would share. Yeah. JB is a very nice person. He was very good to me on this project. He paid me more than I asked to for this art piece. You know, he's a great editor. Check out what he did. And that's, that's kind of all that it's about. If you have a small following, don't bombard them constantly with just the things you're selling. Be sure to mm -hmm. inject some of you into what you're doing we were yeah. talking about this a bit last week actually with the uh the focus was on twitch and uh, building community uh on that platform and how uh the core community there is going to be willing to support you elsewhere so do a lot there, of it i was going to ask no, is there a tabletop rpg community on uh twitch yeah yes there is. It's not as big as any video game usually. Uh, yeah, there are some there's some video games that only have like 800 people watching, but overall the big mainstream video games are going to get more interaction because tabletop is usually very long form, 2 to 4 hours in general. But I have been a part of five charity streams this year and raised like over $50,000 all five together. We never went under 10K. Very so cool. there's plenty of money out there and plenty of people that want to watch the magic happen. Yeah. And, and people are, that are just interested. There are larger streamers. I meant to ask, to I meant to ask like, uh, specifically for the creators, is there a creator community out there rather than just the... I know there's uh, people that play Dungeons & Dragons mm -hmm. on stream, but is there, let's like make a world type thing. Very small. Very yeah, very, not very really. Small. I'd say ten percent. Yeah, and that's because you know they're trying to make it into a product or don't want to share too much or it's not pretty. It's not easy to share what your world is like as you're still forming it out. It's like designing mechanics on stream. It's boring because I spent forty five minutes trying to figure out the right word, you know, for uh, a mechanic. I know that Joby's going to latch on to this, but there's a point when you're looking at physical digital art mm -hmm. where a shape turns into a thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like this magical kind of experience that 
it almost makes the artist and the people watching excited when they see the blob turn into a person, right? Mm-hmm. You don't get that when you're writing and designing for a tabletop thing. It's like, what if I had it do 2D6? No, 2D6 is too high. Uh, <laughs> and then you're scrolling through PDFs and flipping through books until you find some form of this rule from way back when. And you're like, oh, okay, 1D8. No one gives a shit about any of that. And it's terrible to watch there is a small subset of dm workshop that i think is very popular for podcast and live stream Mm -hmm. because people have questions questions need answering and you know people are curious about it uh well since you uh brought up this topic of of uh of writing uh you know and and, and it leads into a question that we were thinking of is uh, that relates to the development process and you know do you guys get blocked and, you know are you do you are in the course of the creative process i'm sure you do re- writer's block is you know a thing um what does that look like for you guys and uh what are what are the kinds of things that you guys work on when you're dealing with artist block on a particular project and also what are what are some things that you do to sort of like over break out of that uh, for me, when I'm working on a project where I have like a writer's block or even just a creative rut, uh, what I'll typically do is I'll just uh, work on something else completely. Like I'll work on a different aspect of the project, a different chapter. I'll I'll have a like stand-in layout, you know, that I'll be like, okay, here's what it is for now. I need to figure it out later. Um, I this will do for now, um, and I can you know do the more complicated thing later. Um, if I can't figure it out now and just, you know, use the stand-in, you know, as the permanent solution until I can figure out a better answer for the stand-in. There is a short form answer to this that I think bridges a lot of gaps between Uh your listeners and your viewers and us as tabletop creators. Everything you suffer making digital or physical art pieces, uh, we suffer too. Uh So sometimes God damn it, I just can't put a word on the page and I'll lay in the floor and lament for 10 minutes. Like it's it's a huge part of it. And the same kind of strategies that have worked for my friends who do uh, visual media, particularly painting and digital painting, because it's so finicky sometimes and it takes so much of your effort. All of the things that work for them generally work for me taking a break and watching something you enjoy, something to spark a little bit more creativity in you, getting away from the PC and going outside. Those little things where you kind of forget that you're a living, breathing human being and you think that you're a production machine, uh, all of that, it, it sets into everybody. Editing, writing, layout, publishing, marketing, social media managing. Mm-hmm. It all comes back together. I love that you said artist block instead of writer's block because damn if that's not true fair enough um well i think that we would be coming up i don't want to take too much of more of your guys's time we said about an hour to two hours and well we're coming up on that and um i i don't want to make a hard cut off so i would like to kind of leave some of the last words to you guys unless moose has anything that you want to jump in with before we turn it over to you guys for the last word real quick uh where would you guys find an editor to help edit your books Mm. and how would you price like their time 
Oh, yeah, good question. So pricing is an awful lot like uh, setting your own rates for doing digital work. Uh, at one point, I was editing for one cent a word, and now I'm up to like 12 because reputation. A whole lot of this stems on reputation. Your reputation as a professional and what you can physically and mentally do, the gymnastics that you can do to make a product better, that's going to increase your rates. You can't ever really start too low. Uh, only you know the value of your work, right? But when people are willing to pay it, go up. And when people are willing to pay it again, go up. Uh, if you're looking specifically to find editors, talk with other people in the community, talk to your peers. It's always going to be your best resource. They have their favorites, they know their prices, they know what they're capable of, and they are not afraid to share. You can also find Discord communities if you're an editor out there looking for work, potentially. Uh, my favorite has been the DMs Guild Creative Lounge on Discord. The DMs Guild Creative Lounge has a lot of people looking for quick, short, easy-to-do projects. Sometimes those projects snowball into over 100,000 words uh, that I've been editing for five weeks now. But, you know, <laughs> things happen. It was quick. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so always hire an editor. Always hire a sensitivity reader. You absolutely 100% need them. If you think you're going to push your product out and make up for it later, you are lying to yourself and you are hurting yourself. Hire an editor. Hire a sensitivity reader. Hire them today when you start working on it. Yeah, same thing. Um, if you're looking for an editor, get recommendations from people. Um, typically, you, you'll get a lot of people from word of mouth, or if you enjoy working with someone, you'll find another editor that they can recommend. Um, it's, you'll find people that way. That's how I found my editors was through recommendations mostly. Um, and I still work with them today. Um, pricing wise, one editor I work with actually is hourly now. Um, and that's because he does it professionally as well. But he, we, he goes through an hourly system. He prints it out, marks it up, and then goes in the digital and does it that way. And that's just his process. But Because we mentioned uh, DMs Guild, it would be remiss of me not to mention the uh, copyright and IP issue. Oh. Uh, some uh, creators refuse to publish on DMs Guild because of this, but I'm not sure what the uh, pros and cons are of why you would want to post there anyway and what reasons you would have to not post on there. The reason, mm, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's very complicated. Hopefully I can sum it up quickly. The reason that you would not publish on there is you do not want to share 50% of what you make. That is your number one and only reason to not publish on DMs Guild. Okay? If you're doing something for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, you should probably do it on DMs Guild. It does cost you half. No, no joke, no qualms. 50% is gone, and then you split the rest of the 50 up among whoever's involved in the project for royalties. The reason you do want to publish on the DMs Guild is because a product that might get 50 or 100 eyes will get several hundred thousand eyes on it on the DMs Guild. First day, at, yeah, first day at launch. Selling on Amazon, there is a little bit of a marketing machine behind it. Um, that will definitely push the visibility a bit, a lot more. Um, obviously, mm -hmm. your product has to be, you know, quality or get be able to get noticed. Um, 
as something like you know visually striking or interesting concept. Um, you get the like, eyes on it immediately. And for me, like I don't sell on DMs Guild because I have an established audience outside of pure D and D, and I want to sell my things on my website and create print products to sell at conventions and stuff, which I can't do if I sell on DMs Guild. Right. If, so if you, outside, if you, yeah, if, like you, if, if you, if you, if you, marketing machine. Yep. I can't. So as as a member of DM or as a if your product is in DMs Guild, you cannot buy copies to sell at a convention at a rate that would be financially reasonable. reasonable. That that was going to be or related to my next question is that if you have stuff on DMs Guild, are you not able to have that anywhere else for sale? No. Nope. Okay. Nowhere else. Just if DMs it's on Guild. DMs Guild, it is only DMs Guild. Okay. Now does that so also you're sort of marrying? Oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say, does that also mean that the content that you put into your product can be whatever, like you can use whatever IP from Wizards and DM, or Dungeons and Dragons that you want without in, having to worry about like any copyright or trademark or anything like that? Pretty much. There's a little bit of limitations on like which specific setting, setting you can use. Um, but for the most part, anything in D&D is free to play in terms of the setting Um, uh there is a pretty big wrinkle a lot of people don't know about again one of the reasons that you would publish the dms guild is that you know that you can have access to 35 years of back catalog lore characters established ips already drift stored and things like that people like names and places people know and you can use them in your product which is insane so that 30% or that 20% is wizard's cut of the 50 that they take. Mm-hmm. The rest is hosting for drive through RPG. That 30% goes to keeping the servers and advertising and bundles and all this backend shit that you don't want to do yourself unless you already have an established IP. The wrinkle is that you cannot make something up in the Forgotten Realms. You can't say, oh, there's a long lost city of ancient elves near Waterdeep. There wasn't. Okay. And you cannot right. do that. They will take your money and cut it off the guild, right? So that's just part of it. You have to be very respectful. And you should really, if you get into using the DMs Guild, read the incredibly robust IP thing that they show their new creatives. So Lawrence made I wonder, a related would it sorry. Be worth? Would it be worth uh, a new creator publishing something that they don't care about too much, but they want to make well, publish it on DMs Guild to get recognition before they branch out on their own? Yes. Reasonable strategy. Okay, so uh, Lawrence in the chat, I want to address really quick because he mentioned RP, RPG drive through. What would be the pros and cons uh, between those two? Obviously, there would be some copyright and trademark issues uh, going through RPG drive through. Um, so what would you weigh, uh, the advantages or disadvantages there between those two? So technically selling anything outside of drive through RPG, you're, if you're making fifth edition material, it's through the OGL. Um, and that's just a license on cr- what you can create with the D and D rules and the rule set. You can publish that anywhere, whether it's on drive through RPG, whether it's on itch.io, whether it's on your own storefront, wherever. You can, you're unrestricted in what you do with it, but you can't use Drizzt Duerden or Elmister or any of the characters' Forgotten Realms stuff. You have to mm-hmm. create something that maybe references things similar to the world 
or things that could be placed into that world without being, you know, without being like the baby bestiary. Um, that doesn't even have fifth edition rules, so it doesn't even cover OGL. Um, but the fact that the creatures would fit in the world or are from the inspiration, from the art style, is where people, I, I advertise to D&D because it fits in that fantasy. Uh, publishing on DriveThruRPG is very, very good if you have a, a system agnostic thing that you would like to publish. Mm-hmm. If you have a non-specific Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition thing that you would like to publish, mm-hmm. but again, or a Kickstarter, you're, you're going to be competing with people looking at other RPGs. You're going to be competing with people looking for specific creators, specific products. So it's a lot narrower margin of eyes that are interested in what you're doing. Whereas on the DMs Guild, every single person there is looking for specifically Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition stuff. Like, that's what they're there for. So your product is going to be titillating as anything else on the table. Okay. Yeah, so the most part is if you're doing not drive through RPG or sorry, not DMs Guild, you're pretty much like going to be kickstarting it or have other plans for that product outside of one ecosystem. Okay. Cool. Well, at two hours, this podcast turns into a pumpkin. Uh, so I do want to wrap it up. Um, but real quickly, I want you guys to wrap for a couple minutes. I know some of you are, are on NDA, uh, you know, so probably what you're working on currently you can't talk about. But if there is a project uh, that's happening right now, um, whether it's your own or something else that's happening that you're really excited about, uh, JB, why don't you start? What's uh, what's happening right now that you're really stoked on? So currently I am, again, working on other people's projects for the entirety of 2020. But going into 2021, I have, ooh, I have an entire folder full of things that I'm interested in making and people <laughs> that I want to involve. There is a creative stifling when you're working just editing words for 100,000 different pages. You know? mm-hmm. So the idea of grabbing a project and running with it seems really awesome right now. Uh, <laughs> currently, I am still working on the Monsters of Merca supplement for Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. It essentially is a parody version of the United States of America in 5th edition. I was and wondering if, that, if I heard that right, Merca. Yes, Merca. <laughs> uh, they have bucks and it's all That's run by the Don and it's got all of that stuff in it. I'm currently awesome. doing layout and editing for that product and they're doing their first expansion in that world called restaurants and retail where it's a bunch of monsters and settings like the the great value version of all the things that you would find in america put in the world of fifth edition it's very funny it's full of puns that i hate but you know it's fine (laughs) as an editor (laughs) right uh it's it's one of those things that a lot of people need that catharsis right now and laughing at the trials and the tribulations that we've seen and having all of these sensitivity readers and having all these people involved, it makes it a very good platform to have some fun set in an America that's been fantasized in such an extreme way to fit in fifth edition. Very cool. How about you, Andres? 
Uh, I'm Andreas Walters. I'm from Metal Weave Games, and I am currently working on the Hyperlight Drifter tabletop role-playing game. Uh, Hyperlight Drifter is, is a video game, an indie video game pixel art that was um, very popular, that was also kickstarted. And it's been a really cool experience bringing that to life in tabletop RPG format. Um, also, I have a bunch of other stuff coming up because I tend to love giving myself work. Uh, I have a baby vestiary calendar coming up in two weeks. I have Dragon Stew releasing in November. And then we have the Hyperlight Drifter fanzine Pulse releasing in November as well. So that's a few. And then I have Owlbear coming, Owlbear Plus coming in January. So no shortage of things to do. Fantastic. Um, thank you guys so much for the time. Uh, it was incredibly rewarding. I'm sure there's a lot of great information that people are going to get out of all of this. And I, in the future, I would love to have uh, both of you on, maybe individually, because there was probably 20 other questions that we could have gotten into just with each of you respectively. And yeah, uh, if you guys were up to it, it'd be cool to do that sometime in the future. But uh, you yeah. should definitely try to get Emily back on here. We severely oh, miss sure. her not for being sure. here today. For sure. She blows my mind every time I talk to her. So much information outside of the sphere of what I or Andreas do. Okay. Totally. Duly noted. That will definitely happen. All right. Well, I'm going to cap it there. Thank you again, you guys, so much.